0: If you've been here any length of time, I've had this thing forever, so I'm actually going to the doctor tomorrow. Maybe they'll. That's just my warning for you that in case, like, he's not even making sense this morning. It's just natural for him right now. It's like, I stand in the back and I'm like, which, oh, just point me in the direction I'm supposed to go. I'll go that way. Okay, I'm good. Uh, So, I'll make this to this. You won't even know I'm sick. We'll see. Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, sorry about all that. You don't even know what's going on. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. And if you grab those sermon notes on those, you'll have a couple things that we've changed them a little bit. On the front, there's a couple announcements. On the very back, you'll have the questions on the bottom. It'll say homework for next week because somebody was asking for a couple extra things to do. So we well, we now give you homework. You're Welcome. If, if, if you're really mad about that, I'll tell you who to talk to. Who mentioned, but it wasn't a bad idea. Just a couple of questions and what and the verses to read for next week. And on the inside, if you do want to read it, most of the time a lot of those notes in there don't even follow exactly what I'm talking about. It expands a lot on what we're talking about. So you can actually, if you read the notes on the inside, don't just think it's what I'm actually saying. It's Sometimes it's some different stuff as well, so you can read all of that. I have one thing before we start, uh, and that is uh, people have talked to us recently about communication at Element, where, where a lot of times people don't feel like we're communicating enough with you and we really try. Okay? We, we, we have announcements. Now we're putting them on, on the bulletins. We, I don't know. We email blast you every single week uh, trying to get you information. If you're in a GC, we do send our GC leaders uh, announcements every week that hopefully they're, they're letting you know about. So uh, I would just like to say this. If you are not on our email update list, We would encourage you to sign up for that. Uh, You can do that by going to our website, and you can click and sign up for that, or you can just grab that connect card that's in the seat in front of you. Put down your name and your email address, and put weekly email update. And once a week on Wednesdays about noon, actually used to be four o'clock. I had a friend as a teacher. It says, "Hey, I can read on my lunch break." You'd be sending at noon, so now we send it at noon. See how accommodating I am? For I'm just, I'm just. Ask my wife. I'm just accommodating. Don't ask her that. All right. So, but uh, it goes out at noon on Wednesdays, and you'll get announcements and stuff, so you know kind of what's going on. All in our effort to better communicate with you. So hopefully that takes care of some of that. Why don't you guys stand with me for reading God's Word? We'll get started. It says, Genesis chapter 23, verse 2. And it says, And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people would be those who understand where our focus and our attention is supposed to be. That when we have loss and pain and struggle, we would look towards you and not towards ourselves. And that we would find this way through the pain and struggle because you are a God who walks with us through those things help us in all things to respond as your children amen have a seat all right so this is genesis week 37 this is actually our halfway point we're halfway done i don't know if you're woohooing because it's like thank god we're halfway done or if it's like yay it's been a lot of fun i'm assuming it's the first one not the second one so whatever all right Uh, you can open your bible to genesis 22 that's where we're at today uh, so far we've seen in Genesis uh, creation and curse. This is the idea from Adam and Eve all the way to Noah. A couple millennia go by and you finally get to a guy named Abraham in Genesis 12. You find Abraham was a sinner just like all of us. Uh, but God extends covenant to Abraham, in relationship to Abraham, and through this covenant brought about salvation to Abraham and Sarah, the same way he brings it about to you and I as well. Now, today we do have a lot of different things to cover, I'm going to try and bring it all together, but mostly we're going to deal with how God watches over us, even in our darkest places, because what happens today in the text is Sarah Dies Abraham's wife dies. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 20 is where we're going to start. And this comes at the end of what we talked about last week, of, of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, and then God reiterating these promises to Abraham. And the end of this actually brings about the idea of these promises coming together. Genesis 22, 20, it says, Now after these things, what we talked about last week, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah, that's his sister-in-law, also has born children to your brother Nahor. his firstborn buzz his brother. And a good heads up for you, even though it's in the Bible, Bible, you don't have to name your kids this, all right, us and buzz, either they're going to be little hellions or they're going to get beat up in school all day long so one or the other, either one's not good. Hased, Hazo, Pildash, Jib, Jiblaf, and Bethuel. Seems like they hate these kids, the way they name them, but whatever. Uh, but the old father, Rebecca. Now, the whole reason this is here is to get you to this idea of Rebecca, Abraham's son, Isaac, this is going to become his wife. And so the idea is to get you to this girl, because Isaac is now going to be the major player in Genesis for the next few chapters, so it wants you to get to him. And what it tells you is that God just doesn't care about our life. He also cares about the generations that come after us. So it says, These eight milk abhor Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Tiba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'aka. Again, it sounds like a parrot. I know, Ma'aka. Anyway, and this is the idea to let you know that it came about through uh, his brother's wife, not a concubine, so that's where it goes. Now, with Genesis 23 is what we're going to spend most of our time in, and this wraps up the story of Abraham and Sarah. And today, what I'd like you to do, if you were married, I'd like to either put your arm around or hold the hand of your spouse. I don't care if you're angry with them. You've been fighting for a couple days. You're driving down to church. You're like, and you get out of the car, and you're like, hi, everybody, what's going on? Right? Hold their hand. (laughs) If you are engaged to get married, I want you to hold the hand of the person you were engaged to. If you're dating, don't. Okay, there we go. Now, what I want you to imagine, and my wife hates it when I talk about stuff like this, what I want you to imagine is what will it be like on the day that my spouse dies? Or if you're a teenager, what will it be like on the day that my parents die? Is what we spent all of our time arguing and worrying about worth it as it took away from us being a whole? Because sometimes the things we think are so important we can't even remember the very next week. So you've got to think, if you're married, what things would you regret not telling somebody or apologizing for? Especially if you're a teenager, like right now, what would you regret not apologizing for or saying to your parents? If you're married, what would you regret not apologizing for or saying to your spouse? Because you have to think of the life where in marriage the things that should have been said were said, the things that should have been forgiven were forgiven, the way that you should have loved, you actually love that way. And there isn't all this grief, but there's mutual understanding and working through issues because we all have issues. But there is growth and remorse. And today, so I want you to imagine if you're a teenager, again, if your parents died or if you're married, if your spouse dies, not to be morbid, but for the idea that we must live with the end in mind. Because both are true actually here. Isaac loses his mom. Abraham loses his wife. And so we don't want to waste a lot of time. We've got to learn to love and forgive because our time is brief. And so at the death of a spouse or a parent, if you're a teenager, you will not remember all the times they grounded you. You will not remember when they got on you for not doing your homework or when you spent all your hard-earned time getting all that Halloween candy. You came home and they ate it all. You don't remember any of that. You know, you won't remember when they paddled your butt or when you're getting out for school and they hug you in front of all your friends. You're like, stop it. And they're all, no. And they give you a big old hug. You're not going to remember any of that stuff. As a spouse, you're not going to remember when they left the lid up, when they drank out of the milk carton or guys, when they messed up the remote control. Because your remote control, you know, does ten things, and oh, no, it only does one. Now, oh, what am I going to do? You're not going to remember any of that stuff. Because some things do not matter when seen in the right perspective. Genesis 23, verse 1 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So she's very old when she dies. It's one of the few women in the scriptures that, you know, her age and her name at her death. Uh, a lot of women, I, I think, don't like to say how old they are, but Sarah was hot as 127. She probably told everybody she was 40 and got away with it. You know? And what happens here is God honors Sarah with this remembrance. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went out to, in, to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, in the Bible, these are the first recorded tears of a man, and they are shed over his wife. So you ought to understand when we stand over loved ones' graves, we will either have tears of remorse for all the things we should have said but we didn't, or tears of joy that even though we had problems, we finished well, we work things out. Now, for my wife and I, I hope my wife Marianne dies first. Not to be morbid, because I'd really like to be in a place where I would preach her funeral and I would tell everybody how gracious she was and how she loved Jesus, and I could I could say a lot of really nice things about her. But on the other hand of that, I also don't want her to remarry because you know, I, I, I if I went first, she, she might meet some other dude. I don't want somebody else touching her, and I couldn't kill him because I'd be dead. You know, so. <laughs> I think the best way is if we just went at the same time, right? But that's only going to happen if I'm driving because I drive like a nut. I drive fast and bad. But that's that's the only way it's going to happen for us both go at the same time. And honestly, I, I really don't like to think about it, but sometimes we do. you got to think about the end because every day we don't say I love you, every day we don't forgive is one day less that we have or it could even be the day that one of us dies. And so you got to think about this moment with Abraham. He's looking back on his life together, all the things he said he shouldn't have said, all the things that he probably should have said. He's probably thinking, man, I shouldn't have said she was my sister twice. That was bad. You know, he's probably thinking about all that stuff. For me personally, because I'm up here, I get to tell you all, all my stories and stuff. I think about my wife way more than she could ever imagine. Probably way more than you could even imagine. In my head, I'm way more mushy than I am outwardly. Uh, I met my wife in 1992 at a college Bible study. We met and got married in the same year over about an eight-month period. I thought she was the prettiest and smartest, most matter-of-fact person I ever met. I was 22 years old, moving out of my parents' house for the first time. I had a mullet. The soccer rocker, the Mississippi mudflap. Yes, I, I had it. Uh, I had parachute. I wear parach- parachute pants. Yeah. She got, I got way more out of this deal than she did, by the way. You know. So, so, by God's grace, at this point, I have made some clothing and some hair progress, so we're getting, we're getting a little better. Uh, our first date, we went to a very bad movie. She threw up afterwards. I thought it was me. You know, whatever. Uh, guys, I'll tell you this. With, from experience, if you like a girl, you take her out on a first date, don't take her to a movie. Take her someplace you can talk to her. Get to know who she is. And so my wife and I, you know, we dated for a while. I asked if I could hold her hand, dated a little bit longer, asked if I could kiss her. Uh, I asked her to marry me on July 4th, 1992. We got married October 9th, 1992. Last week we were married 20 years. Last week. And it's so weird how this message kind of ended up on this day. Like You clap like, wow. (laughs) She stayed with you that long? (laughs) Way to go, her. Now, she she likes board games. I don't like board games. But every once in a while, I will play a board game because I really like her. So I'll do that. Uh, we actually, a little bit ago, bought Catan. Sometimes we play Catan. Maybe you can come over and play with it. I get bored halfway through. So I'm like, ah, oh, resources. How about, can I just take a little car and run it over everybody in the middle of the game? You know, that's, that's what I want to do when I get a little bored, but whatever, we play sometimes. Uh, we ended up getting married, moved to Iowa. She kept me together through a really bad boss. We moved to Arizona, moved back to California, and she encourages me to do what is right, and I probably would not be her past without you. I'd probably be in jail. Without her. And you think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding at all. Uh, She loves me. She encourages me. I can't imagine the day that I would actually have to do life without her. And I believe that I am closer to her today than any other time in our entire lives. So she encourages me to be way more godly than I am on my own, uh, doing what's right even when I don't like it. Because my wife is very black and white. I am all gray area. Okay, she is black and white, and she helps me not to do stupid things sometimes. Now I love to make people laugh, especially her. If you ever get her laughing, she can laugh really loud. Okay, and I love doing. That. I love it when she laughs really loud. She said she married me partly because I make her laugh. And I said, Well, what's going to happen on if I stop making you laugh? She goes, Well, I'll leave you. I go. <laughs> I got performance anxiety now. You know, I got to figure this out. I got. <laughs> Now, one, one day, my memories of her are actually going to be over. Uh, and, and I think this is what Abraham's like. He's in this place in his life, and he's thinking about all of this stuff. And so I would encourage you, anything that you know that needs to be forgiven, you forgive. Whether it's friends or parents or spouses, you take care of it. Before you can't, you get over your pride, you suck it up, and you deal with it. Because we need to. So Abraham makes preparations for his wife's burial. This is verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead, so he stays by your side for a very long time, and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of sight. So he wants to bury his wife, but he's kind of like an illegal alien. He cannot buy property without somebody's permission in this area. And you have to understand, this is the land God promised him. And so he's like, I've got to go and work through this, and God promised me this land, and I've got to go through all these hoops. Oh, yes, he does. The Hittites answered Abraham, here is my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, that sounds really nice. You know, oh, here you can use one of our tombs, but they're saying you can borrow one because they're looking at maybe not necessarily selling him any land. They don't want him to own land in this area what Abraham wants is he wants a nice place he wants to be able to bury her there be buried next to her probably to go visit her at times and the clock is ticking he doesn't have a lot of time it's a hot climate and she's dead verse 7 Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites the people of the land and he said to them if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of sight hear me and treat for me Ephron the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah he's like help me broker this deal which he owns it is at the end of his field for the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place again God promised Abraham all of this land so he wants his wife buried there so he's trying to work this out he's not going around God at this point he's working with God forward trusting God that somehow this is all going to work out so he can get some land verse 10 now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites so he's actually there and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city no my lord hear me I give you the field and give you the cave that is in it and the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you bury your dead now, what you have to understand is the word give is not the same way we use the word give. Have you ever been to the Middle East in, in any country and you're in a place where they try and sell you stuff? They like this word give, and it doesn't mean give. I was in Cairo a couple years ago, and I'm walking down the street, and you just, and somebody walks up and they're in there, and they throw this shirt on me, and they're like, oh, I give this to you for $50. I'm like... Well, that's not giving it to me. But but that's, but that's, oh, I give it to you for this. Oh, I give it. And what this is, is it's kind of like polite Middle Eastern negotiations is what this is. And, and what you have to understand, too, is this guy's throwing in a field. He just, Abraham wants the cave. This guy's, no, no, take the field as well. He's an opportunist trying to get more money out of Abraham because he knows Abraham is in a hurry. It says, And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephraim, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear, if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there so he doesn't cheapen out on her. Verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. A piece of land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury your debt. Okay, so this is, this is price here. This is extortion. And you get to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24, verse 24. David purchases the land that they're going to build the temple on for 50 shekels of silver. All right, this is extortion. It's unreasonable. But what Ephron is expecting Abraham to do is barter. Shirt goes on your shoulder. I give it to you for $50. You're supposed to go... I'll give you two. And they're like, oh, okay. No, no, no. Yeah, I worked really hard on this thirty uh, yeah, five. Okay, five bucks. Oh no 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 my friend, you're my friend here. Don't don't you really like this? Thirty dollars. Eight. You know, and and it's, and that's what's and this is what he's expecting to actually happen in this. But what happens is Abraham doesn't barter at all. Abraham just says fine, and he actually pays this. Abraham listened to Ephron, and and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpala, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. This is the first stake of Abraham's having land in the promised land. Verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpala east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And you've got to think of the finality of that. He actually buries her. And And they had their problems. They did. You know, he gave her away twice. He has an affair with Hagar. They both laugh in God's face. But in the end, they overcame these things. And they finished well. This is not some supernatural couple that doesn't have any problems that we have today. They're just like us. they struggle through all of this and the bible holds them here to say they're just a normal couple if you look through a lot of religions throughout the earth that's not christianity everybody's like oh our prophet was perfect or this person was perfect and you look at the scriptures everybody's a messed up knucklehead everybody and jesus is good and that's the point of the scriptures we cannot do life on our own we need jesus that's the point This couple had hardships just like us, but they had the chance to deal with it before Sarah died. And that's why we make every effort to make things right before we die. Verse 20, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. It's recorded here so that everybody knows he owns this now. In this land, this is now his. Now what happens to Sarah is she dies before she gets to see her grandchildren. Abraham, after this, lives some 38 years longer. He is later buried next to Sarah in this cave. His son Isaac and Isaac's wife Rebecca are buried in this cave as well. Jacob is born, Isaac's son, and Isaac has a wife named Leah. They are actually laid to rest in this cave also. And I think a lot of people get really freaked out because we don't understand death and what it is that it's our enemy. It's our enemy. And that this life is meant to be about hope and true life. But we make this life all about worrying about what's going to happen at the end and our death and all these freaky things. And we and a lot of people today look at death and they think, well, it's just like this extended period of unconsciousness. Actually, Edgar Allan Poe once said, sleep those little slices of death, oh, how I loathe them. Because that's what he envisioned death to be, just as unconsciousness. And so we have this huge fear of it. You know, a study was done recently of people who attend conferences, and they found out after a conference and the next morning, the people that talked to each other, their question wasn't, how was the seminar? The most common question asked was, how did you sleep? That is the most singular, uninteresting question you can ask anybody. What was the quality and duration of your unconsciousness? Right? I mean, ser- seriously. You know, little kids never ask each other that question. You don't go to a preschool and hear one three-year-old say to another, Hey, how was your nap? All right? they-, they don't say that to each other. they got more interesting things to talk about, like dirt and bugs and, and what they ate that the teacher didn't see. You know, all those things. <laughs> I- I've heard it said that you're getting old and close to death by three things. Number one, you make noises when you get out of a chair. Ugh! Like, okay, yeah, I got that. Number one, check. Okay, number two... You start talking to yourself when you're, when you're doing things. Like, if you're looking for a parking spot, like you're down at Costco, mm, oh, that one's closer. What that guy's going to leave? He's going to leave? Oh, I'll pull right up there. Oh, he's going to stay. I'll keep going. You know? Or, like last night, um, I'm laying next to my wife, and I'm thinking about this thing i got to do later this afternoon, and I'm, and I'm talking through it. I'm just, I'm just saying words, and she's like, Are you talking to me? You're I'm like, Oh, I'm just saying words. I'm just talking out loud, because I'm getting old, apparently. Check. Number two. All right. Number three, you ask people you barely know, How'd you sleep? I haven't done that yet, so, whew, you know, I'll try and steer away from that. Now, scripture views all this differently. Psalm chapter 4 verse 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the idea that no matter what happens, no matter what takes place. God is a God who is trustworthy, and He is in control of all things. For me, I do not always lie down to sleep in peace. Sometimes I worry about a problem I don't know how to solve. Sometimes I worry about a decision I have to make, but I really don't want to. Sometimes I worry about a difficult conversation I've got to have with somebody. Sometimes I actually worry about how I will offend you on any given Sunday. Not really beforehand, but afterwards. After I say something, I'm like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have said that. You know, Then I'll worry about the emails that come in and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, sometimes I worry about money. I worry about something that, that I know I've done wrong. Sometimes I'll even think about these conversations and they'll run in my head, I'll, uh, I'll say this, and they'll say that, and I'll say this. And when I've never even had that conversation, it just spins out of control, and it makes it even worse. And sometimes, if my wife is late, or she's not where she said she was going to be, I start to worry that I'm going to lose her. What, what happened to her? Where, where is she? Oh, how, what am I going to do? And then she shows up five minutes later, and I'm like, I'm stupid. You know, but but it's, it's, it's that kind of thing. And so the goal of today, as we round this whole thing together, it's not how you can use God to have a worry-free life. It's about living with the end in mind and working your way back from that because you'll never have a worry-free life if your primary goal is to have a worry-free life because God doesn't get you and God doesn't save you so you can be all anxiety free. God saves us so we can live with him first and foremost in our lives. Now, Eric Metaxas wrote a book called Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. It's about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a great book. I recommend you all read it. It's in our Genesis reading list on the website if you want to see it. Uh, Bonhoeffer is one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century. He sacrificed everything to identify and to stand with Christ against the Nazis. And he did it with poise and confidence that was completely remarkable. Not because he was convinced that all of his circumstances would turn out okay, but because he lived with the end in mind. He lived with Christ as the center of what he was looking at. And he was persecuted in prison, and he was eventually killed. It's because he was gripped by the reality of who Jesus was, this God who demanded his entire obedience and who in turn gave him meaning and purpose and security that death could not mess with. And as a pastor, for me, it's impossible for me not to look at you and ask, as a church, are we producing Dietrich Bonhoeffers? Are we producing disciples of this? And, and a lot of times I'm like, no, we're not. So I ask, how do we do this better? You know, Do we just have people that, that go to church and then sit through programs or are becoming the kind of people that God intends for us to be? So open to Psalm 121, and this this might be the best way I can help to start this process with you. Psalm 121, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer began his his ministry, Psalm 121 was the text of the very first sermon he ever preached, and it lived with him his entire life, all the way to his death. Psalm 121, I'm just going to read it, and then I'll talk about a couple things in this. Psalm 129 starts like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth forevermore. Now, a Hebrew way of thinking in this is that it, these images and pictures, it's very earthy, it's very physical, it's very concrete, so the reality of God would come right down to where you were. As we walk through this, you've got to understand that it's supposed to be concrete and real, especially when you're faced with loss and issues and, and problems that are overwhelming. So he starts, he says, I lift up my eyes. What does that even mean? I lift up my eyes. What am I, what am I looking at? I'm lifting up my eyes. It doesn't refer to your physical eyes. What it means is to notice something. It means you become aware of these possibilities around you. Your attention is grabbed by something. In Genesis 13 and 14, after Abraham and Lot separate, God comes and he says to Abraham this. He says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you into your offspring forever. Now, Abraham can't see all the land. This is something he has to imagine what it actually looks like. And so God says, lift up your eyes imagine what this is going to be. Last week in Genesis 22, verse 4. Abraham's going to the place of the sacrifice with Isaac. And it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, where he thought he was going to sacrifice his son. He, he sees it from afar. And it's all this where his mind is completely engaged in what's going on. It means your imagination is activated. Next week, in Genesis 24, Rebecca, who becomes Isaac, Isaac's wife, sees her future husband. And it says, Rebecca lifted up her eyes and saw Isaac and asked, who is that man, that striking figure of a man? Now, how many of you, if you're married, any wives here, the first time you saw your husband lift up your eyes and said, who is that striking figure of a man? Okay, if you're a lady and you're married, you are dumb if you're not raising your hand right now. Because I just I just set the ball on the tee, and all you had to do was go like this to knock it out of the park. All right? That's all you had. To... So how many of you ladies, first time you saw your husband said, oh, what, that striking figure of a man? Ah, look at that. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. See, it's It's whole whole Yes, there may be loss, there may be pain, there may be all these issues. But you stop looking at that and you look up to try and notice what God is doing. I lift up my eyes. It's a vivid Hebrew way of expressing one of the greatest human freedoms that nobody, and for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, not even people in a concentration camp, could take away from him. It's the freedom to decide where you will place your mind, the freedom to focus your attention. And you can focus all your attention on your problems, your worry, your trouble, or your loss, or you can focus on Jesus. Where whatever's going on in your body, your mind, your bank account, your world, your house, your office, you can focus on Jesus, it's actually a learned behavior. Abraham learned this thing throughout his life. So I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, the the hills. We tend to think of hills and mountains as all these great positive things, because we live in California. We're very proud of our hills and our mountains. Yes, we have mountains. We can snowboard. Have you seen our hills? Right. But in the ancient world, if you wanted to travel, and this is again, is a psalm. It's psalm for pilgrims. It's called a psalm of ascent for pilgrims going up to the Passover. In, In the ancient world, hills were problems. They got in the way. They were trouble. In Isaiah 40, verse 4, it says in the day of the Lord, God's going to flatten everything. It says, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. This is metaphorical. It's not saying God's going to turn everything into Iowa. Okay? What it's saying is is that metaphorically, God's going to flatten everything out because hills were problems. I mean, they could be very beautiful, but there are also places where there is danger. Thieves and wild beasts and kidnappers could hide in the mountains. You can't hide in open plains, but you can hide in the hills. And so for the word hills, what you gotta think about in our vernacular, you might want to substitute the word circumstances, problems, loss, you know, money problems, job problems, family problems, health problems, emotional problems, secret problems, relational problems. How am I supposed to make it over that hill? Where am I going to find help? From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So when we focus on Jesus, everything else begins to come into focus. When we focus on our worry, we just get out of control with anxiety. Our word worry comes from a German word called "wirgen," And it originally meant to strangle, constrict, and to choke. If you're sitting next to somebody, just lean over and grab them and choke them until they turn red. (laughs) Kidding. You don't actually have to do that. But what the whole idea is that worry, what it does is it chokes the life out of you. And this is why in John 10.10, Jesus says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the idea. My help comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from me. It comes from the Lord. And that is how you deal with loss you realize where your hope come from. Now, the word help, it's a beautiful word. It's used over 200 times in the scriptures, most often to describe God. God is our help. That is a humbling thing. I think that the God of the universe that makes everything is willing to be known to his people as the help. Moses named one of his kids Eliezer. El meaning God, Eliezer meaning this idea of the help. God is my Father's help, my God is my help. I mean, if you really take that to heart, that's humbling for you and I. Because we are self-sufficient people in a culture of performance. And it says that we are the kind of people, the little little, little, itty-bitty creatures, who actually need help. This is why loss, when it hits us, we feel so helpless. Because we can't do anything about it. We need to recognize that we are not in control of anything. Anything. I mean, can anybody here guarantee your body's going to stay healthy? No, you can't. You can eat right. You can exercise twice a day. You go to see a doctor once a week. You know, but your clock is ticking. I don't know if you noticed that, but go look in a mirror sometime. Your clock is ticking. You're on. You're, you're, I'm just being honest. You're welcome with that. And ultimately, your body's not in your hands. I mean, can you control the economy? You know, no, you can't. I mean, there are forces at work in this world and, and the whole atmospheres thing that actually lead to different things that happen. We can't control economies. You can work hard, you can try to save, but ultimately that economy is not in our hands. It's beyond human power. Can you make your spouse change? Apparently there's some ambiguity on this. Can you make your spouse change? No, you can't, but you know who can help your spouse to change? Jesus! You know, and you're like, oh, great, I, I wish God would really do that, make my spouse change. You know, I'll give you even better news. God can even change your spouse's spouse. <laughs> I'm, just I'm just saying. See, we want to trust in ourselves, my strength, my gifts, my will, my education, my social skills, my finances, my network of people, my list of names. But one day, there is a hill where none of that stuff can help. And this is Abraham and Sarah loses his wife. And on that day, you will say, where does my help come from? Where do I lift up my eyes? Where does the help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That is the only hope and help that we really have. It's Jesus. Now, as I was writing this, I was looking at what's coming up next week. And I was going to make all this fit into one week. And I thought, no, you know what? This works actually really well for next week. Because what happens is Isaac and his dad are both starting to worry. There's not any good women left in the world and Isaac is a 40-year-old virgin and it's not a comedy. It's turned into a tragedy at this point, right? And so, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to be patient? Are they going to trust God? You know, and they do. They trust God because their hope comes from the Lord. This is the idea. If you look at Abraham, Abraham learns through loss and then through joy and through pain and through hope that there really only is one help that he can trust in. And I hope, you know, in that, in that hope and help, sometimes we're like, well, God's going to make everything turn out the way I want. Well, no, he doesn't. Sometimes, even when God's your help, things don't turn out the way we want. Sometimes people still die. Some people are going to be indifferent to you. You'll have struggles and losses. People are going to want to take advantage of you. The world may be seeming to pass you by, but I will tell you, just like Abraham, my and your help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And this as a people is what we must live with because this is what we hold to. This is what we preach. This is what we are to live in our lives so everyone knows who God is and what he has done and what he continues to do. This is why we remind you of communion every week because God came and saved us and we had no help on our own. We can never do this. This is why you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body is broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, remind us of his blood that was shed for you and I. This is what communion represents, that God has been and always will be our help and our hope because we have no other help and hope. You know, the band's going to come up. They'll do a couple songs, and as they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back if you need prayer. Maybe you're feeling like a lot of loss. Maybe you're feeling like you just don't know which end is up, and they love to pray with you about where your help and your hope comes from. It comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and who made you in the midst of it. Uh, There's offering box on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And there's some cookies and stuff in the back. I only had a couple. Uh, Hopefully there's still some left. And we do that so you guys can get to know each other. Because in the course of God saving us, he also puts us together in community so that we can live lives that encourage each other to live in this hope and this help that he provides. Because our God is Good. And you may be in a place in your life right now where you think there's just tons of loss. You don't know what to do. Everything is overwhelming. Well, you need to look at what Abraham went through. You need to look at what the psalm writer talks about. That our help comes from the Lord. Nobody else. And then once we understand that we get to live these lives, then God makes us His hands and His feet to this world. And then we go out and we extend that help and hope as well. But it's because He first loved us. This is how we're supposed to live as a people and be as His children. Those who live fully in His hope and in His life. And I encourage you to live that way this week and the rest of your life. Why don't you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I ask that we as a people would understand more rightly what it means that you are our help. That it's not that we're so wonderful that you have to you know, come and just be our help, but that we have no hope and help at all until you save us. And so today I ask that you would change us and remake us and renew us so we can become this people who fully reflect and glorify you with our lives. That we would understand that everything that we have comes from the fount of your blessing, from the place of hope and help that you provide, and that we in turn could live as a people who bring you great glory and great honor because we live our lives fully in view that our hope and help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So today, have us be those who remember that and focus on that and live lives fully with you in view. And that we would honor you and all that we do by how we love not only just you, but those around us. Father, thank you for saving us and thank you for loving us. And thank you, most importantly, for being our help and our hope and we ask all these things in your son's gracious and good name